Whoso pulleth out this sword from this stone and anvil is the true-born king of all Britain. Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff. I'm in a particular state of disarray from my virtual grog meat preparation. Star Frontiers, Knights Black Agents, Gangbusters, Call of Cthulhu and Traveller strewn upon the floor under layers and layers of sticky notes. On my right is the great library of RPGs and my grognard files. Here on my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Munro. I'll, uh, I'll just give her a tap. Oh no, the shrine has become corrupted. A grotto inhabited by Helen Mirren as Morgana. For this time... We are riding with our squires through the shelves towards Camelot. Ah yes, King Arthur Pendragon RPG, which is a pinnacle of Greg Stafford's wonderful creative legacy. Released in 1985 by Chaosium, it transformed the potential of role games as it focused completely on emulating the world of knights in pursuit of valour and glory to ultimately sit at the round table. Political intrigue, spiritual advancement, succession and reputation are the drivers for this game of a pastiche medieval English history and Arthurian legend. I didn't play it back in the day, and I didn't get to play it until recently. Me and Blythe have played in a game, Games Mastered by Gaz, our friend from What Would the Smart Party Do podcast, the UK's premier RPG podcast. Yes, that's what they call themselves. Gaz has a great talent for creating atmosphere, framing scenes and presenting NPCs to create an authentic experience. There was a moment in one of the early sessions when we were attempting to persuade a woman who was a hostage but didn't want to be rescued and returned to her husband. Chris, one of the players, reminded her of her oath, not only to her husband, but to God. It was at this point that I realised, now, this is interesting. The game is about nobility, the conflict of moral choices, and the consequences that the player characters make if they intervene or don't intervene on the world. From that moment, I realised that it was something a bit special. I'm joined in the Zoom of role-playing rambling by David Larkins, the line editor of King Arthur Pendragon, and we talk about his formative experiences in role-playing, the history of the game, how it works, and how he is bringing Greg Stafford's vision of his ultimate version to life. Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, casts a critical eye over the game, He finds lots to love in the game, 
But conceptually, is it his bag? You'll find out. There's a bit of interference in that segment. I hope it doesn't spoil it too much. We also, at the end, have a closing time chatter about some of the things that have got our attention recently. We managed to go the whole podcast without a mention of Monty Python, which is worth a tick against prudence in anyone's book. I'll be back at the end with a quick goodbye. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box. Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards. How the games of the past have shaped the gamers that we are today. And I'm joined in the Zoom of role-playing rambling by line editor for King Arthur Pendragon RPG, David Larkins. Hello, David. Howdy, howdy. Thanks for having me on. That's great. And where in the world are you, David? I am coming to you from Santa Fe, New Mexico, Southwest United States, cowboy country. Oh, fantastic. And uh, is that somewhere you've always lived? Because you, you still live in California, didn't you? Yeah, you know, I've kind of bounced back and forth. I was actually born here, uh, but I did live in California for about 20 years. Yeah. Came back out here about 10 years ago. And uh, where all your formative years of uh, role-playing took place in uh, Santa Fe? Yeah, well, a little bit. And actually, that yeah, I, I was lucky enough for my first gaming store. Some, some old grognards might remember a place called War Games West which is in Albuquerque, which is about an hour south of here. And they were actually a national distributor of gaming stuff. So they had a big catalog and it was a great way to get into the hobby. (laughs) And so how did you uh, find the hobby? What were the first games that you played and who were you playing with? I've always kind of been an autodidact when it comes to gaming. I know you guys did your fighting fantasy series a little while ago and, um, you were sort of musing about whether those books, uh, ever brought anyone into the, the RPG hobby. I am a living example of that <laughs> um not fighting fantasy but actually the lone wolf uh books uh, you know i just kind of chanced upon them in a bookstore when i was about 10 years old really got into those and actually sort of had a, a gming training wheels experience with that because i would read the book out loud for my friend on lunch break and then let him make the choices and then you know and then i would like do a dramatic reading you know that kind of showed me like what a role-playing game was like. Um, Also, since those books functioned like as a campaign, you could play them sequentially with the same character. So by the time I was thinking about getting into uh, D&D, because that was the only role-playing game I knew of, I had some familiarity with it. It was the 83 Red Box with the solo tutorial in the front, which was totally familiar territory for me. It was just something I knew about in the pop culture. Actually, a friend, that now I'm thinking about it, a friend gave me the, the expert set before I got the basic set because he just assumed I played D&D. <laughs> <laughs> just flipping through that, I had no idea what any of it meant, but the art was cool. You know, just gradually kind of built a group uh, out of my friends through high school. Quite interesting that it's at Lone Wolf that you went for because, I mean, it, they're beautifully illustrated, aren't they, by uh, Gary Chalk and uh, mm-hmm. great adventure set in an almost uh, bucolic English setting, isn't it? So is that was that an appeal to you? Definitely. As a kid, I was really into like medieval kind of like imagery and like history, you know, so I've always been like kind of a medievalist uh, in addition to being interested in it on a gaming level. I went on to get a degree in history when I went to university. I didn't specialize in the Middle Ages. That was one of the, the motivators for me. So obviously we'll get to talking about Pendragon, but you can you know, maybe understand there how that happened. That first encounter with the, with the world of Magnamund, which is the setting for the Lone Wolf books. I think that's what really called out to me. So as, as well as uh, D&D in those early years, what were the other games that you were playing? 
Well, you know, the funny thing about that, and I think it is because of having access to War Games West right off the bat, you know, I mean, it was just, just anything you wanted gaming wise, they had it books, miniatures, board games, whatever, paint. And so I, I, and because I was kind of teaching myself the hobby, I, you know, I was very much like, I have to learn everything. I have to master all the circles of mastery that there are to, to find, you know, so role-playing games, miniatures games, war games on, you know, hex and shit war games, right? So I was very much like right out the gate, very interested in just finding out as much as I could about the hobby. The second role-playing game I ever bought after the D&D basic set was GURPS, which was quite a leap for me as a, you know, 11-year-old or whatever. But I love the idea that it's like, oh, here's this game you can use for anything. Wow. Didn't end up playing a lot of GURPS, but was an indicator of where my mind was at, at least. And then shortly after that, you know, Call of Cthulhu, of course, Cyberpunk 2020, you know. Uh, but yeah, I was jumping around all over the place, sometimes too much. You graduated into uh, Pendragon. So when did you discover that? And how, how, how did you discover Pendragon? Um, that was another sort of chance thing. You know, I, I, I had gotten Call of Cthulhu, loved it, was running it. But that was really the only Chaosium game I was familiar with. Um, you know, again, this being kind of the, the early to mid 90s, uh, RuneQuest was kind of off the radar, at least, you know, in my neck of the woods, I was out in uh, Los Angeles by that point. I was aware of its existence, but like, you know, it was kind of the twilight years of third edition on that one. So didn't play RuneQuest, didn't really play any other Chaosium games. And then, you know, I had a subscription to Dragon Magazine, which I always read cover to cover. They had a review for a supplement of scenarios, Spectre King, and the reviewer took that opportunity to really just sell the game, really. It wasn't just a review of the, you know, scenarios. It was like, here's why Pendragon is awesome and you should play it. It worked. I was like, oh man, you know, I need to get my hands on this game. And finally got around to picking it up. And then that was when fourth edition was out, which is a really big, thick uh, tome of a, of a rule book. So it took me a while to kind of get through it and, uh, and absorb all of it. So really, um, I really did not start running Pendragon regularly until like the early 2000s, actually. It kind of took a while to get around to it, even though it was one of those books that I would often flip through and read. Finally had to just kind of be like, yeah, I'm going to actually you know, bring this to the table and run it. So yeah, it's been um, 15 to 20 years of, you know, consistently playing it. I find it fascinating that some of the people I talked to who graduated to Pendragon in the 80s, it mm. almost was an epiphany uh, for them. So they discovered a whole new seam of role-playing that they hadn't experienced before. Do, do you know something of the history of the game? And uh, do you think that is um, true, that, that it kind of unleashed a new level of role-playing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, some of the stuff I know for sure, some of it I've just heard is hearsay. So, you know, I'm, I'm not positive. But my understanding, so, you know, Greg Stafford, obviously, creator of Pendragon, after he had started working on Glorantha and then RuneQuest and, and all that sort of stuff, he still wanted to do something with like the King Arthur cycle because for him, um, he, he he's talked in the past about um, he had a neighbor when he was a kid who collected all the Prince Valiant comics, which, you know, were these full page, full color Sunday comics. And the guy would, would clip them out of the newspaper and put them in a portfolio acetate sleeve or whatever. And so he had like binders and binders of these Prince Valiant comics and Greg would just kind of hop over to his neighbor's house and be like, Hey, can I look at your comics? You know, and then he paged through them all afternoon or whatever. So I'm um, pretty sure that was the, 
the genesis of his interest in Arthurian stories. And, you know, there was a board game that Chaosium put out, King Arthur and the Knights Round Table, I think. But, you know, he wanted to do a, a role-playing game with it. The uh, mechanics of Pendragon Traits and Passions system was originally, he originally wanted to put that in RuneQuest 3rd Edition. And it didn't work out for whatever reason. That's where I'm a little hazy. But anyway, he's like, oh, I want to do this Arthurian game anyway. Hey, you know, this would be a great opportunity to to use my trait and passion idea. And um, I had a post about this on the Chaosium blog uh, last year, but um, I was lucky enough to get access to Greg's um, personal copies of Le Mort d'Artur that he used when he was designing the mechanics for the game. And you can see he's gone through almost every single page. He's underlined and annotated places where he's like, oh, this is an example of, of a knight who's going mad because uh, they fumbled a passion. This is an example of like a critical uh, success on a, you know, like a, a vengeful trait or, you know, what have you, right? He's, he's pulling examples out of the literature uh, to, you know, just make sure that these uh, mechanics are going to give you that kind of literary experience. And this is in the early 80s. You know, I, I've, I've got um, a box full of his playtest material. You know, it's like 82, 83. I'm not really sure anybody was doing something like that back then. I mean, nowadays, you know, you do see that. Oh, I want this game to emulate this genre. So I'm going to like deconstruct this genre and figure out what makes it tick. And then I'm going to design mechanics to promote that experience. In the early 80s, I mean, most RPG design was still kind of like either moving in a simulationist direction where it's like, how realistic can we make falling damage? You know, kind of more like a wargamey kind of feel. And yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I wasn't around when first edition came out, but everyone I've talked to who was, they'll, they'll tell you like, yeah, that really revolutionized things, you know, for people who, who read it, because here was this game that was basically saying, you know, it's a little bit like the James Bond 007 game. You know, there's a lot of stuff coming out in the mid eighties that was doing that. Right. You know, it's kind of like, we're going to give you that experience. I think the particular genius of the, the trait and passion mechanics is that, um, they kind of force uh, they force characters to do things against their own best interest, which is a hallmark of the Arthurian uh, stories, right? You're constantly like, why are you doing that? You know, and it's like, well, that's what's going to happen in the game. Guess what? Yeah, I mean, I've um, started playing it recently. Uh, Gaz from the Smart Party has been uh, taking us through the Perilous mm-hmm. Forest. So we've been playing, yeah. playing, playing that game. And it, that's what struck me. It's the a game that is very singularly focused on delivering the experience that it needs to deliver and the all the mechanics work in that direction, don't they? For people who don't know about the passions and the uh, trait mechanics, can you just quickly explain how they how they work in the game? Oh, of course, yeah. So, oh, and just like, you know, an addendum, as you know, I mean, in the, the latest version of RuneQuest, they finally did sort of come home to live <laughs> in RuneQuest Instead of traits, you have runes, mm-hmm. but you also have passions in both. And so, you know, in either system, it's it's a way of sort of quantifying your character's personality and their goals and what's important to them and their motivations and all that kind of stuff. You know, Pendragon in particular does not have, you know, it has it has like, you know, attributes like, you know, most other RPGs. So you've got your strength and your dexterity and your size, you know, all your classics are BRP attributes. But it's only the physical ones. There, there is no intelligence. There is no uh, power. Those aren't there because we have the traits and we have the passions, which are doing a better job in this case of defining 
your character's interior life than simply giving them a, a numerical intelligence rating or whatever. So the traits are um, 13 pairs and each pair is uh, balanced so that they'll add up to 20. So you might have a chaste trait of 13 and a lustful trait of seven. Chaste goes up to 14, your lustful goes down to six. So they, you know, there's this constant push and pull between the opposing traits. You know, if they get high enough, um, they sort of force actions on you. So if you were, flip it around, if you were particularly lustful, and there was somebody trying to seduce you that was against your better interest to allow that seduction to happen. Well, if you're really lustful, you're going to go for it. Consequences be damned. But normally you could roll to see like, well, am I going to be able to stay chaste in the face of this beautiful person, you know, trying to put the moves on me? So they're a great, they're a great guide for role playing. They're a great way to, to spur uh, story development. Oftentimes, since this is Arthurian fantasy They'll come up as part of like a moral test. If you, uh, you know, there's a wall of flames you have to pass through and you need to like succeed on all of your like religious traits because you need to be pious enough to pull it off. And if you don't, you're going to get burned by the flames. And if you, if you do, you can pass through. Okay. So it's a great, it's a great uh, like multi-application mechanic, right? You know, it, it can drive the player. The player can use it for them, their own uh, ends. And then the, the GM can use it to cause drama. Um, <laughs> and then passions are like a hundred percent drama engines because passions are the things that your character really cares about. Um, everyone has like the core passions of honor, hospitality, love of their family, loyalty, homage, uh, to their Lord. You know, those are the things that are important to all knights, right? But individual knights might have a hatred of a particular person or even like, you know, a group like, you know, I, I hate all Saxons because they're invading my land, you know? Those are just invoked if, you know, you let's say you have a love of somebody and they're in danger. You invoke that passion, you roll against it. Everything's on a one to 20 scale. You roll a D20 against that passion. If you succeed, you get a bonus to a skill. So if, if uh, you know, saving that person involves jumping in front of them and defending them with your sword, you would uh, boost your sword skill. If it involves there, if they're on trial and you're going to like say a few words in their defense to the Lord, it might boost your orate skill instead, right? Critical successes boosted even more, you know, so you can have these like just, you know, you can really do these like sort of superhuman feats a lot of the time with your passions. However, if you fail your passion, you get melancholic. If you fumble your passion, you go mad. Usually involves running off into the wilderness, not to be seen again for <laughs> anywhere from two weeks to five years. But, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as you say, a lot of the scenarios or situations that you put in are uh, challenging those ideas isn't it so um for example we were had to go to a castle of a robber baron and accept his laws of hospitality however he was doing terrible things in his castle but we were bound by our honor to his hospitality so it is a we're walking on tenterhooks trying to negotiate our way through it and so that yeah. that's what it, it creates um very unusual situations yeah yeah absolutely um i mean that's that's the game at its finest is either when you have an internal struggle you know like maybe uh you know that it would be just to submit this defeated foe to judgment but it would be merciful to let them go so you're going to roll your judge you know even though those are both positive traits you might roll just versus merciful to see which way you're going to go so that's an internal conflict and then there's these great ones where it's like yeah uh my honor is on the line hospitality is on the line 
whatever, you know, my, my loyalty to my Lord, I need to prove that. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the game's very good at generating those, those sorts of dilemmas. The other aspect to it that people enjoy and celebrate is this idea characters having heritage, also the winter phase and that things can happen outside of like this downtime where uh, narrative things happen. That seems uh, to have come from Greg's wargaming background. Do you, do you know anything more about that? Nothing specific, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, you know, this, this idea of you're not really playing the character so much as you're playing the legacy or the household of this, you know, of this night. And so you want to, you want to think on a, on a sort of a macro level, right? And that's, that's very wargaming, obviously. Yeah. And I know there were some games with downtime mechanics at that time, but um, that's one of the earlier examples for sure. I think some of that uh, legend of the heritage comes from specifically from um, the great Pendragon campaign. And everybody hails that as one of the greats. In full, I've run it three times. And then I, you know, basically it's, it's my setting Bible, you know, anytime I'm running Pendragon at all, you know, because it kind of gives you the meta narrative and you can, you can use as much or as little of that as you want, but it, it kind of tells you what's going on at any given time, which is great. Running the full campaign is amazing. You know, it, it really is a unforgettable experience. That takes you through generations, doesn't it, of a, of a household and uh, uh, to, to fulfill the full cycle of uh, Arthur's legend. Uh, in its current form, you know, when it was, it's, it's been through multiple iterations. It started out, you know, just being called the Pendragon campaign and then it became the Boy King and then it became the Great Pendragon campaign. And then we're going to have a, you know, second edition of the Great Pendragon campaign coming out for six, six edition of Pendragon. But in its current iteration, it runs from the reign of Uther Pendragon all the way up to the Battle of Camlan, the final battle where all the knights of the round table die, except for one, and Arthur is borne away to Avalon. So it's it's quite a journey because you start off in a very brutal, cutthroat kind of feudal society where there's a lot of injustice and a lot of really dark kind of stuff going on. And it gets darker when Uther dies and you go through this anarchy period where there's no king. So then, you know, and then you get into the reign of Arthur and and that's its whole thing, right? You know, so I mean, it's, it's, it really, I mean, it takes at least a year and a half to run it if you're meeting weekly. I know a lot of groups take a lot longer because they like to take a little bit more time as they move through the narrative. Um, but yeah, even if you're running at a pretty good pace, it's going to take you a while. And by the time you get to the end of it, it really is kind of, you know, looking back at the beginning of it, it really is like kind of looking back through a telescope, you know, it really does feel like you've kind of <laughs> passed through multiple generations, you know, and, and every, every player will have like a whole set of legends and stories about their family and, you know, this character and the way he died or this character and the, you know, some of his accomplishments or what have you. So it's, it's, um, I, you know, personally, I feel like you you need to have some kind of way of recording your exploits, you know, even if you're just keeping a, a little journal, um, obviously the players should be recording their their characters things. And then at the end, it's like, just sit down and, and spin some stories. Finally, a mechanic that everybody mentioned. So, you know, as well as the uh, passions and the uh, traits and the, the cycles, the other thing is the uh, simple mechanic of having, um, oppositional role for combat and how that is resolved. It moves at a real lick, doesn't it? The um, uh, the combat, surprisingly brutal as well. 
<laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. I, I mean, both those things. And, and that's what I really like about the game. Actually, it's kind of ruined me for for other uh, systems that have crunchier combat. I mean, crunchy combat does have its place and I, I, I enjoy it uh, in its own right because it tends to produce oddly detailed and specific outcomes that sort of stick in your memory. Uh, on the other hand, I really like having a fast combat because then you can just move on to the next <laughs> thing. And yeah, the first time, like whenever I'm running first time Pendragon players, there's always that moment where somebody takes like 40 points of damage from a critical hit and just there's silence around the table because everyone can't believe what just happened. <laughs> yeah. On my first outing, I thought that it would be an honorable thing to do to joust with a, another knight who was uh, threatening us and uh, I regretted it instantly. Yeah. It, it's an interesting uh, core tension within the game, right? Because like the knight's duty is to fight. Like it's not like you're uh, you know, even in a RuneQuest game or a D&D game, like you might be, oh, well, my character is more sneaky. You know, my character tries not to get into combat or whatever. No, everyone's here to fight. Every single one of you are here to fight. And um, if you're challenged or whatever, you can't really back out of it without some consequences. But it does add to that, uh, to the stakes, right? Because it's like, oh man, I, I really like to back down from this. Can I afford the hit? Can I afford the hit to my honor and my my reputation? no, I better go for it and just really pray that I get through this, you know? So even though the combat's like really fast, it's always tense, you know? Yes, yeah. Again, I like that about the rules and the singularity of saying you are playing knights in this game. So you, yeah. you ended up obviously in your present position of line editor. So how did that come about? Because I know that you connected with uh, Greg in, was it around 2014, 2013? Yeah, about 14. Yeah. Um, and and I'd been sort of sharing my experience of playing Pendragon online for a few years before that. And that's kind of what led to that happening. I mean, it's, it's really one of those, like, you never know what, you know, where things are going to lead, or you're just doing something for fun or whatever. Because basically, the first time I ran the Great Pendragon campaign, it was one-on-one um, -on -one with my wife because we were just at a time when we couldn't get a group together. And I just said, I am itching to run Pendragon. Do you want to play? And she's like, sure. So ended up doing that. And I'd always wanted to do like um, write-ups of, of game sessions. And so I had a blog at the time. So I just started doing these session write-ups and they got longer and longer. You know, they got more like kind of novelistic as I went along. They got a lot of attention. Um, and then, yeah, five, six years later, um, I ended up connecting with the guy who was working with, uh, you know, Greg had a little circle of, of folks that he worked with. And the, the, the guy who was primarily working with him, a uh, fellow named Malcolm Walter, uh, he was very active in the Pendragon community. And so I contacted him just at random through the boards and he went, oh my God, you're the reason I'm playing Pendragon. I was reading your session write-ups, you know, like five years ago. And I was like, I need to get into this game. And then I guess he was just better at networking than I was. And he, you know, he kind of <laughs> connected with Greg. But he was like very generously, you know, he was like, you know, you got to get in here and work with Greg. So I, I said, sure thing, you know, absolutely. I couldn't believe it. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of pretty wild. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, I was just one of one of uh, Greg's household, as he put it, you know, and we we just did proofreading, editing, uh, feedback, you know, just bounced ideas around with him um, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, we were kind of his inner circle. And then 
Um, basically around that same time, I just decided like, you know, I think I was in a position in my life where I'm like, I can afford to do a career change right now. I'm going to try and go for it. Like just in terms of making, uh, you know, gaming work, my full-time job, I'd kind of done freelance writing work in other fields off and on for like 10 years prior to that. So I had some experience, but like, I'd never like kind of written in the gaming sphere before, you know? So I just thought, let me see what, see where that goes. And Greg, he was all about facilitating people's ambitions. If somebody came to him and said, I want to do X, he would do whatever he could to help facilitate that. The The test project that he brought me in on was um, there was a, a spinoff uh, um, version of Pendragon that was set in medieval Japan that had kind of just sort of stalled that the author was Japanese and his life had just kind of gotten derailed um, due to the Fukushima quake, actually. And so, you know, he'd had to abandon the project and so greg said hey do you want to kind of come in and carry this on and i said yeah absolutely you know so i did this crash course in 12th century japanese history and uh you know just kind of got into it eight months later had a game written so that's kind of in retrospect like oh that was great sort of giving me a chance to show what i had show what i could do and um and it was very greg of him because he was just basically like he didn't have any advice for me other than just like um read some origin myths you know, read some Japanese origin myths. And that was it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, of course, Greg would say that, right? You know, start with the mythology and work your way up from there. And that will be getting published eventually. It's kind of been greenlit a couple of times and then got pulled back. So it will be, it will see the light of day. And then, um, yeah, you know, I, I would just meet up with him every year at Gen Con. And, you know, he asked me, where do you want to go with this? And I said, well, I'd, I'd love to be the line editor for Pendragon one day. And he said, well, that's my job. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> you know. Like, <laughs> just... <laughs> and he said, but we'll see. We'll see what's going on. You know? And then, yeah, he just uh, called me out of the blue at like 1230 in the morning. You know, Because he's like, I've, I've seen some of your emails are timestamped 2 a.m. So I know you're a night owl like me. I'm like, yes, I am. And he's just like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking to start the retirement process. Do you want to like come on board and I can sort of mentor you and we'll just transition out, you know, I'll transition out of working on the line editor side of Pendragon and you can come in. And of course I said, yes. And sadly he passed away four months later. So I didn't have a lot of time in that mentorship capacity, but you know, what's been really great is that all the folks at Chaosium had similar relationships with Greg that I did. And so we, you know, I often talk, especially with Jeff Richard, just about Greg's goals as a game designer, his, uh, you know, knowledge as a mythologist and a shaman and everything else, you know, what that, how that informed his game design. And then of course, I'm still working with all the folks from Greg's household who have worked with him, some, some of them over 10 years. Between all of us, we kind of like can equal Greg's brain. <laughs> I, get, I get the sense even in that, uh, in, the, in those later years, Glorantha was uh, important to him, but Pendragon seemed more of a passion project that he kept close to him, even when, you know, Glorantha had gone in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, he, he had uh, lost Pendragon in the late 90s um, during the, the, the shakeups at Chaosium. Stuart Wick, um, also sadly passed, bought the rights to Pendragon specifically to bring Greg back in. Greg told me about that. Like Stuart called him up and was just like, Hey, I've got a chance to buy Pendragon. Do you want to come back and work on it? So, I mean, it's like kind of paying it forward, right? Cause Greg did the same thing for me. Right. You know, it's like, just, you know, that's what I'm trying to apply, you know, in, in my work, looking to help out folks who are trying to break into the industry or just always wanted to work on Pendragon. It's like, 
yeah, let's talk. So when Greg was able to come back to Pendragon in the early 2000s, I know he was really happy about that. And he was very explicit about sixth edition kind of being his magnum opus, you know, not just like the final statement on Pendragon, but like, I think he's, he said something to the effect of like, uh, Glorantha is like kind of a group project. You know, a lot of people have contributed to Glorantha and to RuneQuest. Pendragon, he's a sort of personally identified with, like that was his game. So fortunately he was far enough along with sixth edition at the time that he passed away that, you know, it was essentially a first draft. So we've been able to keep it very close to what he wanted, you know, and just kind of polish it up basically. That's your current project, isn't it? So how's that coming along and what changes can we expect to see in the new edition? Uh, Yeah, it's coming along really well. Um, You know, we thought we were going to get it out last year and then supply chain issues and, you know, everything, all the other disruptions going on. We just thought it'd be better to, you know, not try and rush things and just get it out this year. So it is definitely coming out this year. In fact, the starter set is in layout and that's going to be going to print very soon. Core materials are getting the last bits of art in. So we'll definitely start (laughs) turning on the fire hose this year because we have a lot of stuff lined up for the game. I mean, the intention is just to keep a steady release schedule going. We don't want big gaps in between releases. And so we're actually leading with the starter set, which is um, first for Chaosium. Obviously, there's the starter sets for Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest, but those you know came after the fact. So this is an opportunity for us to actually put that out first, which I'm really excited about because you know I just I want people to check out the game and especially folks who might not be that familiar with the Arthurian legends, you know, they just kind of know about, oh yeah, King Arthur round table. Okay. This is specifically geared towards like, here's what's going on. It literally starts off with Arthur drawing the sword from the stone. Uh, and then you, you're, you're just there through all those kind of famous early events. You meet Guinevere, you uh, see the founding of the round table, you fight with Arthur at his battles against the, the 12 Kings and all that kind of stuff, you know, that's like probably part of the most famous, you know, uh, aspects of the legends, right? As far as like mechanical changes, I mean, the, the game really does stay the same for folks who have already played it. They're not going to see a lot of major changes. It's just more like a lot of small tweaks to various little, little, little bits that Greg wanted to kind of highlight, or since he's sort of on his journey at the time of like finding out more about like the literature and about medieval history, kind of bringing in some, some other aspects there into the game that um, just give it that a bit more flavor, really. I mean, he called the game, he called sixth edition, his ultimate edition. And I think that's completely a fair description. It it really is like the version. I mean, I've been running it for, you know, the last two or three years in playtests and whatnot. It really is the version of Pendragon that I think Greg always wanted to make. It's just, it just delivers that much more. Just going back to the starter set, can we mm-hmm. expect it to be a similar format to the RuneQuest and Call of Cthulhu starter set? Is it going to be as packed with uh, material? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we, we've got our sort of template down at this point. There's a, there's a solo quest tutorial. There had to be if I'm, you know, involved. But no, I mean, we also have them in those other boxes as well. And it's a great way to teach the game, you know. So there's a solo quest in there. Uh, and then a condensed rule book and then um, a little campaign that Greg wrote map and oh, some cards, you know, because we have that we're going to have the feast uh, system and the, the battle system uses cards, too. So, you know, just all kinds of little goodies, dice, of course. And it's going to look gorgeous. I can I can say that authoritatively because I've seen the layout was art directing for it as well. The map is amazing. 
I'm just really excited to get it out there. So I think it's going to be a great way to get into the game. One thing I'd say, David, is that uh, we've been playing online and it, and it works really well for online play. As we said, the mechanics are so straightforward and easy. Can, can we expect some uh, VTT support for Pendragon in the future? Yes, absolutely. I, you know, that's not my job. You know, I'm like, I'm not in charge of that, but I am party to <laughs> the things that are going on. <laughs> behind the scenes so i don't think i'm allowed to talk about specifics oh, but right. okay. uh, i will say i will say there will be multiple platforms for pendragon i i think it's uh fascinating that two people in california dream of england and uh well us in england are dreaming of the california sun and uh westerns mythology that we crave yeah i mean the the joke in my mind is that you know you've got an american working on pendragon and you've got You've got two Brits working on Call of Cthulhu, which, of course, is kind of like, you know, home to to Massachusetts, you know, Arkham and everything. I mean, obviously, Call of Cthulhu is more global than Pendragon, but still, it's funny. Like, Lynn Hardy will go on Facebook and be like, does this phrase make sense to Americans? You know, <laughs> like some <laughs> turn of phrase or whatever, just to make sure everyone gets it, you know. And I'm the same way. Like, I have to, I mean, a lot of the uh, Greg's household uh, folk are, are in Europe. I'll, I'll just check in on uh, geography, points of geography or whatever. And then, you know, we've got medievalists, like actual medievalists on the team. And so checking in with them, make sure everything's good there. You know, we, we definitely want to do it justice. Really? Well, thank you very much for that, uh, David. And you're going to come back and face the Games Master screen. I think I will roll my Valorous and, uh, and do it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> just play the rules. Welcome to the Zoom of role-playing rambling. I've got Judge Blythe with me. Hello there, Blythe. Hello, Doc. Now, of course, we're talking about Pendragon. And in Pendragon, mm. as a knight, you are the law. So you, you'll be right at home here, <laughs> won't you? I'll be right at home. Or maybe not. <laughs> Sheriff, we'll judge and jury. It's, yeah. it, it, it's like it's like being Judge Dredd, but in the land of in shiny, Arthur. In shiny armor. Yeah, yeah. But this is the first time that we've uh, met together, and there's not been a storm. We're in our own homes, aren't we? And it's glorious and it's quite, sunshine. Quite sunny outside, nice, isn't it? That's why we're, we're doing what all RPG people do, aren't we? On a sunny day, staying inside. Talk about games. Stay, yeah. stay inside. Talk about games. or play games. Yeah. Don't Shouldn't go you be going anything. out? It's lovely yeah, out there. Get some fresh air. That's what my dad used to say to us, isn't it? Get some fresh air. Get outside. No. No. <laughs> we never did. We never it's, did. I, I don't think about sun, sunny, warm weather. Always reminds me of role-playing. As it reminds me of the long school holidays when we would role-play endlessly every day all the time, wouldn't we? And stay inside. It's an odd thing about sunny weather outside. In some ways, I'm nostalgic for staying in. Yes, I enjoy yeah. staying in. There's something magical about staying in. <laughs> and you know, and you know, when we did go out, we used to go to those weird edgelands uh, around Bolton, where mm. there's a bit of greenery, and it's usually yeah. where there's an abandoned uh, lodge, mill lodge, or it was mm. just like a break between houses, or there's, as I think I've met, we've mentioned before, the disused uh, railway line. Uh, where we used to yeah. go and wander around. We used to imagine this is what Arthurian Britain would look like, you know, if it wasn't for the um, shopping trolleys and... Uh... 
abandoned Wellington boots and things <laughs> like that. Yeah. The kind of landscape that we were warned about in 1970s public information films. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's true, though, isn't it? We used to wander around, <laughs> and I remember having a stick that I referred to as Excalibur, and I had that stick for an entire summer. Oh, yeah, I, we were quite we were quite obsessed with, with Excalibur. Arthurian stuff, we weren't reading the books or anything we're just obsessed with the film weren't we yeah we weren't reading the mist of avalon or uh what's what's that welsh uh, book the uh mabin noggin is it we did we didn't we weren't yeah, doing all that well, kind of no we weren't doing that we were just obsessed with, with excalibur the idea of excalibur we we're in starburst and again as we've said before in the days where fantasy films were were few and far between you know excalibur looked I mean, I know we're going to talk about Excalibur, so we can move on from it maybe, but I think it, it looked spectacular, didn't it, Excalibur? You know? Well, so, it looked so really I... professional. It was like a professional film. It wasn't like Krull or Hawks. Like, it was a real film. Real film. Barry Norman would talk about, was going to talk about it on film whatever, 83 or whatever it was. Yeah. What strikes me about it, though, is why is it that we were so obsessed with Arthur intrigued by the idea of Excalibur, why did we ignore Pendragon? Why didn't we have Pendragon? Why was it not within our repertoire of games back then? Well, there could be one obvious reason, which is a reason we've discussed many times. It was probably bloody expensive, wasn't it? So There is that, and I think also it looked quite austere as well. More akin to one of those Avalon Hill war games than a role-playing game. That's why I always thought about it. Let's be honest, you know, one of the things, we were still in our fantasy phase where we were obsessed with monsters and it just didn't look like a thing that had monsters in it. Yeah, it didn't, that's right, it didn't. And I, and I suppose, as I said earlier, there was a difference between, perhaps a difference between Excalibur, as, as we saw it, the film, and the Arthurian myths and legends that maybe we, maybe it's a bit touched the Tolkien's about it, you know, we kind of looked at it and thought, oh, don't know that I don't really know that much about Arthur. I sword in the stone and Mordred and stuff. I know that, but I don't know. Maybe you have to know the ins and outs of it, or maybe you have to know all the details of Arthurian myth to, to play it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, but I remember seeing it in the shop, but I can't remember many. Yeah, it was one of those where the adverts or the reviews, my eyes glided past them. But I know for a lot of people, it was a very formative game. It transformed the way that they played role-playing games. Mm. So many people speak yeah. to me and say that that was um, their conversion from this idea of uh, role-play to a role-play. Yeah, you can definitely see that in it. I mean, again, uh, one thing one thing that's going to feature heavily, I think, in this Judge Blythe Rules is the phrase, at the time, at the time, it was perhaps revolutionary. When you when you play it now, I, I don't know if there's that much that feels special about it, but you can see how back then, because I don't think it's changed much, has it? But back then, it would have been quite something, I think. It would have been quite something. If, and if we had bought it, I can imagine it would have either been something that we would have gone, oh, I can't be doing with this, or it would have transformed the way we play role-playing games. I yes. can I can definitely see that revolutionary quality to it, I think. Yeah, because it was a bit later that when we started being a bit more serious about the role-playing aspects and less about... Yeah. Uh, we, we, yeah. You know, we were more into the characters, weren't we? And less about yeah. the 
uh, collecting stuff and the statistics were more about actually how do we pursue this story how do we make um yeah this a bit more interesting and i think i think what's interesting is if we'd have bought if one of us had bought pendragon at that that later period of our role playing it would have it would have probably gone down very well i think if we bought it early on we would have thought oh no don't like this but later on we would have it would have definitely enhanced what we were trying to do with RuneQuest. i think We'll have a look at the uh, the rules in a bit of uh, detail because we've actually managed to play it with uh, Gaz uh, recently. Mm. And it is one of those games that I've kind of held back on because um, it feels like wh- I, when you play it, I wanted it to be right. I wanted the circumstances to be right. I wanted to do it properly, if, if you know what I mean. <laughs> it just feels play like one properly. Of- yeah, no, it feels it feels like one of those games where you have to do it justice. You have to do it as it yeah. is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Play it as it as it, as it's meant to be played. Yeah, yeah. Because it it is laser focused uh, on what it's trying to do, isn't it? It's trying to present yourselves as knights, and you can only play knights, and that's yeah. what everything around it is geared around. It's it's very. Um, you know, Gaz, Gaz said it's like an indie game before its time. It, it, yeah. it, it's laser focused on making sure that it's emulating that experience. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I mean, we might come on to this, but I, I'm not sure I'm all that keen on that. I mean, there is there is a slight problem in that. You know, the worst D and D character class is the cleric, but of course, the second worst is the paladin. So having to play potentially play like a paladin type character, it, it's a bit annoying. I find. You can you can play other things. You can play like a squire, and there's a pre-gen, isn't there, of a hunter or some huntsman? Mm. There, there are some, but but you're right. It's almost like even those characters are aspiring to be a knight, and knight you're either a knight or someone who wants to become a knight and will become a knight. But there is a part of me when I'm playing it, I'm thinking, all right, so I'm just I'm just a knight. Yeah. And I, when we played it, I did feel like we were all all four of us kind of bumbling around, going, "Oh, it's good, sir. I'm a knight. She's a knight as well, and so am I." And we will all behave in a particular way. And a part of me thought, oh, oh, "All right, yeah. can't be a wizard. No, no, you can't be a wizard. You have to be a knight. Yeah, yeah. Put this suit of armor and be a knight. I want to be a knight. Well, you have to be a knight. It's Pendragon. You have to be a knight. Oh, well, I don't want to be. I, I think there's a bit. There is a bit of that in it. <laughs> you think, do think? All right, I have to. And also, and also, I have to have to you see again it's about role play it is about role play but it almost like you have to play the same role <laughs> you have to be the same play the same role don't you we'll come on to this when we talk about the rules but uh, there is a bit an element of that to it which about maybe it, maybe maybe, maybe that explains some of my reticence in that you know i wanted to play this game with you and if i said to you blithe over the next uh, three months i'm going to run, run a campaign D and D campaign, but it's all the entire party is made up of paladins. What would you oh, say? Can I be a cleric? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'd say? Could I but, be a wizard but, or a rogue? Barbarian? Because I guess the fighter <laughs> class is the is the class that you would avoid. You would yeah, steer yeah, yeah, away yeah. from at the best of time, yeah. and particularly one that has the alignment restrictions of being lawful good yeah yeah and that to me is a slight problem with it uh, in that he's sort of a knight and 
do nightly things and and fight in nightly ways. But we'll get we'll come on to that. I think, and I think some of these issues are woven into the rules. Some of the some of my think thoughts about the rules are, are, are connected to this idea of you have to play a knight and you you behave in a particular way. You know, so there's the Arthurian world, but the rules as, as written certainly dissuade you from playing anything other than that. And, and interestingly, and I, I, I was quite surprised when I read this, it dissuades you from playing a woman. I mean, they, they're quite, mm. quite up, up front in the rules and say, no, no, it's Arthurian Britain. Women, you know, stay at the castle and do embroidery. So you can't be a woman. It does point out there are a few exceptions that it points out, but it kind of, which I thought was quite surprising because because other games, like you know, you read other games that are set in say Victorian times, and they'll say things like, "Well, I don't worry about those elements of it." Deadlands, for example, is don't worry about that it's the late eighteen hundreds and it is quite a sexist world. We'll ignore that; it's not a sexist world. And if you want to be a female cowboy bounty hunter, you can be. But Pendragon doesn't do that. It, it, I was quite surprised. It, yeah. In a modern version as well, it was, it's bla- it just, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I was surprised that it said that, yeah. you know. I, I think it's because it needs that hierarchical world for it mm. to function. So some of the things around the um, cycle of um, a, a knight's life is uh, tied into the patriarchal society, isn't it? So um, the mm. land they inherit, and it, it just it, it it just exists within that patriarchy. Yeah. And for it to so finding function, finding a wife and having children assumes it, that the wife will want to have children and comply with the it. castle looking after the children, comply with it. Yeah. Oh yeah. no, and no, I can see that. I can see that. But I, I did at the same time. I did think maybe there's ways around it i can see that this is going to be a uh, challenging discussion which is great isn't it it's great because i think it's, great, it's, great, yeah. Yeah. it's one of these things that we feel differently about this and and so i'm going to open up another can uh, and I've, i warn you it's not quite stellar artois but you know it could get nasty this well i'm gonna i'm gonna go and get one well, i'm gonna get one from the fridge if you don't mind so what, what is it that you're drinking what are you, this is a this is a I've got jute jute by salt or is it salt by jute? I'm never quite sure. No, it's jute by salt. A session IPA. Session IPA. There you go. I've got um, a brew dog. All right, stop. Everybody stop booing whoa, in the back. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, there is there isn't a local co-op. It's um, um, three quid for four because they're getting rid of it. Oh, it's because they've been cancelled or whatever. But yeah, is that it? It's that jagged edge, and it's oh, like, yeah. it, it, it describes itself as a spiky India pale ale. But it's you a know bit what? Uh, a bit flat. You know what Pendragon? You know what Pendragon would say about Brewdog? It would say, "As a knight, you may not drink Brewdog. <laughs> it goes against your code of honour. <laughs> if yeah. you do, something happens to you. There you go." I want a brew dog though. Well, you can't. You can't. You're a knight. Shut up. I, well, no, the laws of hospitality state that in my own castle, as a robber baron of uh, my own <laughs> den, I set the rules of hospitality, and therefore everyone who attends needs to drink this spiky pale Indian. Because uh, I've got a job, lot of them, because it was three quid, and I've got <laughs> I expect to roll on your brew dog. 
percentage <laughs> and your trait, Brewdog, and all the beers are available trait. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, okay, let's um let, let's uh, see the usual format. So okay. your three highlights. What are your three highlights of the game? All right. Things things I like. Um I like um the traits. So there's the there's passions, isn't there? But there's traits, isn't there? The uh, yeah. Okay, traits. Traits. Uh, opposed roles. Opposed roles. Yeah. And I think the winter season, the winter cycle as well. Yeah, the, the winter, winter cycle. cycle. Yeah, that's good. We can talk about those, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll come on to uh, what you think is the duff thing. Let's uh, remain positive, at least for for this bit. So, okay. uh, all right. So passions, uh, explain how passions work uh, for those people who well, don't mind. It's not, so much the, it's not so much the passions, is it? It's the, the other things. Or the, the traits, traits sorry, the yeah. Like personality traits. I mean, the passions are a bit like, um, I, I suppose they are, they are interesting um, in that, you know, you have a bit, bit like RuneQuest now, isn't it? You have these loyalty to whoever, and you can roll that to give you a bonus to your passion. But I think the traits are more interesting because they're kind of like personality traits. It's a D20 system. It's a D20 roll under system. Yeah. You've got a skill at eight. You've got to roll eight or less on D20. So it's pretty, pretty simple, really. It's not particularly difficult. And, it, and it's got things like skills, which are, again, fairly straightforward. You know, you've got falconry or whatever at 10. You've got to roll 10 or less. But um, the traits are tied together, for example, merciful and cruel haven't you something like that yeah and you you have a score you split the tw- the 20 is split between the two isn't it so if you were a particularly merciful knight you might have 15 in merciful and only five in cruel you, what you have to do at certain points in the game if you want to do certain things is roll against them so it's and I think this this is probably the revolutionary aspect. It doesn't just let players do what they want. I mean, you, you can do what you want. It's not it's not like completely restrictive. But it, if you want to do certain things, you have to roll against your traits in order to do it. It restricts your, the player's behaviour. It kind of turns character behaviour into part of the game. When you say back in the day and of its time, I always say, yeah, but it applies now. I well, that's a given. We we, we always yeah, yeah. say that. Yeah. Because I do think it, it it is innovative idea that as well as your normal attributes, you've got these components of your personality that can change as well. So if you are in a position where actually you show more of one particular side of your personality rather than another, you get a tick, and that might change. So the balance might shift. So an example is uh, my character is, uh, uh, I think I described him as um, Martin Freeman, didn't I? That kind of permanent perplexed look on his face, very prudent. However, as a player, I'm not very prudent and my tendency is towards recklessness. And because of an ambush, we were ambushed, I rushed forward because that is my want. I had to take a tick because I was moving more towards reckless behaviour. So yeah, I do think lacking. that's a it, it, it provides a formal way of using rules to support role playing. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's right. Because there is that kind of drift, isn't there? In it, if you behave in a particular way, a trait is going to start going up, and another one's going to start going down. That kind of thing. I mean, but I think part of it as well is to prevent you or make it difficult for you 
to do unknightly things. I think there's a like suspicious and trusting or something like that. If you decided you were in a castle and you thought, oh, we're going to search someone's room, it's a classic kind of role play move, isn't it? Oh, we're going to, you don't like him, we're a bit suspicious of him. You'd have to roll perhaps on suspicious to in order to do that because it's unknightly and knights are more trusting and take people at face value and, you know, honorable kind of stuff. Whereas doing something dishonorable, you'd have to roll in order to do it because it's against. The, your character and that, that is i think that's i mean that's in a way that's one of the real key elements of the game isn't it it's one of the elements yeah. of the game that makes it different from other games some a, a lot of other elements of it are quite familiar but that is is a very very different side to the game i think and the scenarios are composed as such that you are put in positions that challenges that you don't really have an option but to walk into situations and use whatever traits you have at your disposal to try and resolve them aren't you so you might be put in yeah. a position where as a, a member of the nobility that you have to um yeah impose justice onto a situation and it might be the right or wrong thing to do and that's the thing that the game encourages you to negotiate and that's why i, find, I think it's interesting and i can see why that was so challenging for people who are used to that chaotic neutral behavior where nothing really matters as long as the end result is favorable to have characters yeah. where you you have to behave in a particular way yeah i i think it is great i think i think that i find that really really enjoyable. I, I think it's i think it's okay until we come on to the bit of bit i don't like but we'll leave that's part of that idea you're right it does force people act in a particular way and that is a very interesting element in the game and it's an element that i like but i think there's a, there's a downside to it but we'll come to that when we get onto the rule elements that i don't like yeah. it, it take, gives you one hand and takes away the other i think we'll, we'll keep we'll, we'll put a pin in that then but you're yeah. um coming back to traveler looking at traveler and I remember one of the things that you said was people default to a particular type of behaviour. This is they do, a, yeah, they do. This is a this is a resolution to it that is more interesting than alignment. And there's nothing it? wrong with there's nothing wrong there is nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the traits. I picked it as one of the one of the rules I like. I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but you've got to look at the game as a whole. I think there is a there is a bit of a flaw for me in the game. It's all right restricting players and making players do particular things. But I think you've got to give players something. We're jumping ahead a bit here. Part of the game is kind of quite crude and basic and not sophisticated enough to really support the traits thing, which is quite sophisticated. But we'll come on to that. And uh, second, oppose roles. So this is how uh, combat is resolved, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, combat's resolved. And I suppose other things as well. <laughs> it's, it's not very exciting as much as... Uh, I do think it's, it's, it's a neat system of oppose roles, which makes things... Things happen quite quickly. And back in the day, I think it, it would have felt very, very interesting as a system because back in the day, everything was roll to hit, miss, roll to hit, miss, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas what this does is you roll two D roll D20 each and whoever gets the best score. Bit, bit like 7th edition Cthulhu now, you know, they're, they're fighting back and dodging and that kind of thing. I did like, I like that element of it because it's quick, it's quick and it makes things happen. I like how matching the value of your skill is a critical as well. That's a clever yeah, bit. Yeah, that's well, quite a neat, neat way of doing it. So if you have your skills 11, you've got to, to hit someone, you've got 11 
roll 11 or less but if you roll 11 if you're all dead on that's a critical yeah yeah it's quite a neat way of doing it isn't it a lot of these um opposed rolls when you get a neutral result where nobody succeeds it's never quite satisfactory for some reason you always feel like something should happen something should happen and nothing does it nothing yeah there is there is potential for nothing to happen but it's rarer i suppose it's rarer than rarer than in other games isn't it you know yeah yeah isn't it strange how i'm conditioned you know to have that kind of backwards and forwards of yeah okay that succeeds oh no that parries da, da, da. and going through that and it's laborious kind of grind however mm. I, I love a pause rolls i like how it works but I do feel when there's a neutral result that you always feel, what does that, what, does that mean? Nothing, nothing happens. What? So it's not worked properly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's not worked. It's broken. This system's broken now. Look. But, <laughs> what does nothing happening look like? Well, then, I, I, mean, yeah, I know what you mean, but then again, in, in some ways, if you fail, you're, you're quite glad that nothing happens. If you fail and they fail, you think, great, because I failed and, it's quite it's quite a risky they quite i mean again i'll come on to this but it's quite dangerous to combat the opposed roles makes combat quite dangerous because because something happens something's kind of likely to happen to your character just as much as it's going to happen to the guy you're fighting so it's good from that perspective but sometimes when nothing happens i think you're probably quite pleased because you think oh i failed i hope they fail even failing when they fail and you fail I, when we play, I'm quite relieved. I didn't feel like, oh, nothing's happened. I was so thank God for that because I'd failed. And I think we should say at this point because kind of brushed over um, passions, but passions can have a real effect on the game as well. If you roll against passion and your chance of succeeding increases, it, you feel that increase. And similarly, if you you fail to roll it and your Results is modified because you're feeling so melancholic in that situation. It can have uh, disastrous results. Yeah, it can. It can. It can go. Can cut both ways. The uh, the passions thing. It's not not simply a case of again something happens. If if even if you fail the passions roll, it can be uh, a bad thing as well for you. Okay, and uh, the next uh, thing you mentioned is, uh, of course, I suppose it is the aspect of the game that everyone seems to mention. That's the winter cycle. So going through yeah. uh, different cycles. Yeah. So you adventure yeah. over the summer out there in um, bits of England that look like Bolton in the 70s. <laughs> Dishies Railway. Wondering why there's a Dishies Railway there <laughs> in Arthurian Britain. And then um, winter. Yeah. But the, winter, you re- retreat to your Motton Bailey and other things unfold. Yeah. Once you're in the winter cycle, there's, there's kind of various roles you make. Famously, I think, whether your horses survive. You couldn't, you know, children are born and, Children can die and things can happen, and uh, you know. But it, but it's done through through roles and tables, isn't it? It's not role played, and I think that's a really good aspect of the game. It presents itself as a long term game. You you play this over a long time, so your knight might live twenty years and raise a couple, some children, and might die as an old man, presumably, and then one of his children can take over. You know that kind of thing. Let's just put a pin in this one. That <laughs> phrase you use, put a pin. Put a pin in this one as well, because coming to the bit I don't like. This is also part of the flaw. Traits great. Winter cycle great. 
the idea that it's a long-term game. So the idea is not do an adventure and then you get a bit older. Because in a lot of role-playing games, characters never really get any older, do they? No. You know? Yeah. You know, they go they go from they go from novice to rune lord in about four years, don't they? And you know, when in real life take quite a bit of time. And I quite like that's a really good aspect of it. And again, an interesting aspect that it it's a, a long term game, you know, you will get your character will get older and have children that kind of thing. And and, and the other thing that it does, it weaves you into Arthurian history as well. So you could have an involvement in some particular aspect of what's happening in the larger world campaign i think i think uh, for my night in gaz's game i had a nephew born and uh, you feel a sense of attachment to the character because you place it within within the family and place it within the larger world somehow it gives you that boost doesn't it it feels mm. very wargaming though that's what i'd say i think this is an element of the game that comes from greg stafford's uh, love of wargaming because mm. this is very familiar yeah. i seem to remember i think we mentioned on guard before when we played that that had a similar pattern didn't it of uh, rolling yeah. to yeah. see what happened during the winter months yeah yeah, yeah, it, it does. It does have that. It, it is. It is a kind of gamey element of it, but I, I quite enjoyed it. I think it's a, it's an interesting aspect of it that you, you've got this period of time where you're not adventuring, you know. Because because when back in, again going back to when we were playing, trying to develop more story orientated games back in the eighties with RuneQuest, we we played it like day after day didn't we so i remember we had like a long campaign but it was it, it was played almost week after week in game time so the characters never got older they, they were it was lived out almost in real time, real time right yeah, well yeah. yeah like you know well yesterday you did this now it's the next day and this happens and yeah i mean you might have said all right a few days have passed or a week's passed or whatever but you wouldn't go a whole season's passed nearly half a year's passed in winter in a castle but you but you can and it works. It does work, and it, it's interesting. It's not like you've been shortchanged by a games master saying, "Oh well, let's say winter's come and gone, things happen. You're all on tables, and there's a sort of sense of." I know what you mean about it being gamey and a bit war gamey, but it, it can be quite dramatic. You know, things can happen. So I, I like I like that element of it. Have you got a, a dice there? Then? What what kind of dice? What do I need to roll? Hang on, let's have a look. So let's do a, a winter phase. Let's get you. Uh, let's get you married. Roll a d uh, a d twenty. You can have a random oh, no. marriage. <laughs> a random marriage. Yeah. What what's this? I can arrange things. Hang on. Yeah. Sixteen. Sixteen. You got a daughter of a vassal knight. I find out what your dowry is by rolling a d6. Three. Okay, and uh, let's see. Uh, he's going to give birth to a child. Give um, a roll of d20. What was my dowry? What was my dowry? Well, um, how much did you roll? Three. Oh, sorry, 300. 300. All right, okay. Go on. She's going to give birth to a child. Right, okay. Yeah. Okay, roll a d20. Let's see what happens. Uh, 10. 10. Oh. No, it doesn't happen. Don't happen. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, ph- phantom pregnancy. 
phantom pregnancy. Okay. Yeah. All right. There you go. That's what that's what happens between that bit and this bit. Right. But that's but is it that is it it is interesting, isn't it? Because over over time you see those roles become important because if if it's set in the Arthurian world, you, you need you need an heir, don't you? You need children to yeah. inherit your castle and stuff. And that that is interesting. I didn't, didn't yeah. think that's a good good aspect of the game. Because those things could then feed into the adventures, couldn't they? Oh you definitely, know? yeah. They yeah. would feed into the adventures. So that the two things are not they're not separate things you roll on the winter cycle but what happens during winter might then make you think hang on yeah. and it's, it's like that isn't it finding it finding a wife or things something like that i really i like that element of it before before we move on to what your duff bit is because it's got so many pins in it it looks like a voodoo it's got so many pins like it's, it's like a voodoo doll yeah <laughs> let me just say that one of the things i really like about this game is that it does set constraints on characters mm. and things like hospitality and yeah uh, those laws that are set um, really create interesting situations uh, I, yeah. I do admire that and, and that is definitely something i'm going to take away and uh, to put into other games to and I, uh, and I do as well i i absolutely do as well i don't i don't have a problem with that i think those things are really good and, and other games that i like other games that do things like that um that's not a problem i'm not i'm not suggesting that uh, i want to play murder hobo that that's not what i'm suggesting at all but when we come on to the duff bit i think a bit of a flaw running through it right really. let's, let's take the pin out. out let's take the pin the out. thing the thing, it's, thing it's a, this is the grenade this Let's no, it's not. The thing I don't really like about it is combat. I think combat is too deadly in it, and it runs. It, it to some extent, I think it runs at odds with the rest of the game because the two elements, two of those three rules that I like. So you've got winter season. So you've got this idea that you play this character for a long time, and you play them for many years, and they have children, and they get a castle. They do this and they do that, and that's great. But combat is so deadly. How on earth are you supposed to survive that long? The same with the traits. The traits, I mean, it's fine. It's fine if you're, you know, you're having a banquet with uh, some lord and, you, you know, you're talking to his daughter and you, you make a kind of, uh, you know, ill-judged comment. And th- th- that's Those elements of it are fine. But some of the, the, the fact the traits, I suppose it's not really the traits, to be fair. To, to be honest, it's not perhaps the traits. It's more the idea of being a knight, the idea of being chivalrous when combat's so deadly. I mean, there's, there's things in it where it says, you know, oh, you, you know, you can't use missile weapons. There's a line in it that says, knights would never use a bow. They may use a javelin because the Greeks use javelins or something. So it says something like that. Uh, but you wouldn't use a bow. And you think, oh, God, great. You know, they just get absolutely hammered and clobbered by everyone. And when we played it, we were all nearly killed in one fight, weren't we? Yes. Yeah. There was a fight where I rolled particularly badly and a guy was absolutely hammering me. Because there's rules about like being knocked down, so you get hit, you have to roll to stay on your feet, you fall over, they get an advantage, they hit you again. Um, you take quite a lot of damage. You can take a hell of a lot of damage. You challenged a guy. There was a kind of rather villainous knight, wasn't there? You challenged yeah. him to a joust. You were about three hit points from death. One yes. hit. Not ki- nearly killed you, knocked you off your horse. You had to roll another d6, and I think if you rolled a five or more, you'd have been dead. 
and you're all the two. So you were you were you were nearly killed. But just think and then of the Chris's glory. character. Just think of the glory. But 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 then hang on. But Chris's character said, "Oh, but I suppose I'll need to joust him." And it went the other way. Then Chris killed this guy with one blow. And I'm sitting there thinking, "This is mad. This is bonkers. I have to I have to be the chivalrous knight." Clanking around the countryside, saying to people, "Oh, sir, I'm a knight. I challenge you to a duel. I will fight you." And then, and then good God, you, you've got no chance. Then your wounds don't heal particularly quickly. So you, you once you've had a lot of bad injuries, you're in trouble anyway. And I do. I just think it needs. This sort of saying before it needs to give you something. I think if a game wants you to behave in this chivalrous way. It's fine. That's fine. There's no problem with that. There's no problem. And there's no problem with it restricting how you behave. That's that's fun. That, that's great. But if it wants you to behave like that, and if it wants you to be chivalrous, and all right, nothing wrong with combat systems being deadly, but it needs to, it just, I just felt it needs to give me some, there were times when we were playing where I just felt helpless. I just felt I have to do an pause roll here and if I lose, I'm just going to get absolutely hammered. And that did happen. That did yeah. happen to all yeah. of us. We all took a proper beating at certain times, and it just felt like there's nothing we can do about it. It, it offers you nothing in combat. It seems to offer you absolutely nothing. And that, for me, is a real flaw in it. You know, if it gave you, if it gave you something like, if, if for example, player characters, it said you've got, I don't know, chivalry point. You've got three chivalry points, so you can re-roll. You can re-roll three times during the game or make an opponent re-roll. You'd feel that confident thing. Okay, yeah, I can be a knight and be heroic and all that kind of thing. But, it's, God, it's like it's like being a first-level D&D character and picking a fight with everyone you meet. It's just like, yeah. oh, no. this is. This, I, I do think it's a combat's utterly, utterly flawed. Yeah. Given, given, it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that it's flawed. As such, there's nothing wrong with it in itself, but it stands at odds with what the rest of the game seems to want you to do. The game seems to suggest, and there's nothing, I'm not saying you shouldn't die, you sh there should be risk in combat, but the, with this winter cycle, the game seems to be suggesting your character will live a number of years and raise children. And no, he's not, he's not, he's going to die in a joust. Because every time you, every time, would I mean, like, I put this question to you now, and then answer honestly. You got into that joust with the knight, quite ignorant of what was coming your way. No, would you do it again? Yeah, would I do it again? <laughs> Come on, answer honestly. Would you do that again as a player character? You, I think you'd feel cheated and think this is ridiculous. This is a I flip suppose, of a coin as to whether I I'm dead or not. I suppose it made me appreciate why uh, they went around the countryside in uh, tin cans. Pro they'd probably have been better off. Stop poncing around and <laughs> fight dirty. <laughs> you know, fight, dirty. Fight, fight tactically. But there's nothing, but, but it doesn't allow you to do that because that's not all, that's all night. This is what I'm exactly. saying. Exactly. The, the game, the game <laughs> does, it does say to you, no, no, don't, don't, you can't fight dirt. You can't ambush people and use a, a crossbow. You can't do any of that. And, and there's nothing, there is nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that in game terms. But I think what a game system that does that has to give players something to 
up the chances to say you're player characters, so you, you're going to give you a little bit of a benefit where a terrible, you know, a terrible roll, you've got three re-rolls, something like that, eight points or whatever, you know, that, that kind of thing would 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 benefit the game tremendously, I think. Yeah. Because it gives you, gives you a bit of a chance and it would make you feel more confident. Whereas by the end of it, I just thought, oh, this this is just ridiculous because every, every time I get into a fight, it, it seems like 50-50, I'm going to die. Yeah. But the game wants get, me to do another winter cycle and have some children. I I can see that. I can see that. And is, isn't that part of the challenge of the game, though? That is part of what it's trying to set up, that actually you're in a terrible position as a knight because you have the responsibility to take action, but you're vulnerable. And I suppose mm, yeah. I, 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 I quite like that challenge, and I quite liked it going through different scenarios or situations where you knew that actually it is it, a strange thing that the odds were against us, even though we were most supposed to be the most powerful and pe- people in the in, in society. But something about it that I, I found quite appealing. It was a game um, when I played it that I really thought I can run this. I can see this running and I could see this running as uh, one shots, actually. It's a kind of game that you could take to a convention and it's quite easy to pick up. And you could actually have a few interesting situations that people can work within. You can get people engaged quite quickly. It, it is a game that I uh, I enjoyed and want to spend a bit more time with. But I, I accept what you're saying. I think uh, I think com- combat is deadly. But I suppose it. I just think it just uh, makes you f- think differently about the scenarios that you present. It's that it's that D twenty swing, isn't it? Yeah, I know what you mean, but but it's, again, I I don't think it does allow you to think differently. See, that's the problem, isn't it? Even, there are lots of games where combat is deadly. So we've just played some old school essentials, haven't we? In a, a dungeon crawl, old school essentials. And what was fascinating yeah. about that game was that you went in as first level characters, and you you very rarely got into a straight fight with anybody. You you absolutely avoided straight fights. So you you use trickery, you use all those kind of things where you think, hang on, we came to a straight fight, we're in real trouble. So let let's let's hit them with the arrows or let's let's set a trap or let's dodge them or avoid them or use a spell to trick them all those kind of things but you see i don't think pendragon allows you to do that does it It doesn't allow you to think differently the opposite it doesn't let you think differently you've got to think you've got it's prescriptive it's actually quite prescriptive about you have to think it almost says you have to think like this you can't use crossbow because knights wouldn't so don't and i found that i found that less fun because you feel like the game's telling you how to play it. And I get the point that you are playing a knight. And is if you don't want to play a knight, don't play Pendragon. That's a fair point. It's a fair point. <laughs> get that. Don't come don't come at a game about knights and come playing. And it's, you have to behave like a knight. But I do think it's such a deadly combat system. But it doesn't let you think tactically. It doesn't let you think tactically. Yeah. It says... You've got to wade in and go, yeah, I'm a knight. I'm going to fight fair. I'm going to... There's some peasant with a stick who fights dirty, completely beats to a pulp. That said, I know that a number of people have uh, 
hacked to the system or used the system in their mm. own uh, settings, which I find unusual because, as I said uh, in the preamble to our discussion, I think it's quite focused on the world that it's trying to deliver. So it's interesting that people have adapted it and adopted it for different uh, settings because I, I, I question how it would work. And I think I'd like to explore that a bit more to see how yeah. that works, like a mythic Greek setting or you know, uh, very, various different things. And people have suggested, you know, we, me with my gangster conundrum, that Pendragon is a perfect example of uh, using traits in a gangster setting or uh, an espionage setting. What do you think? Are there, are there anything? Is there anything that you would take away from this that you'd want to adopt in other games? Well, as a system, I, I think it's it's fine. I mean, it's fine, isn't it? I, I just think it's you could you you can see it being used for other things because it worked perfectly as a system. There's nothing wrong with it. You could use it as a gangster yeah. thing, couldn't you? Because there's like codes of behaviour for gangsters, and then you could have a cycle where. You do criminal activity. It doesn't have to be winter necessarily, but you could do like a cycle, couldn't you, of criminal activity for your gang and then have an adventure and then another cycle of criminal activity. You could see something like that work. It, it, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's me. I think maybe it's me and, and it's not my style of playing. I don't know. But part of me just felt it was restricting my behaviour as a player. And like I said, no, it's not I want to be a murder whore, but and do whatever I want. It's not that I mind, I don't mind my behaviour as a player being restricted, but I just felt the combat system was so deadly that it, it the restrictions on my behaviour seem to threaten my character's life at all points. Yeah. And I'm not sure. The only option you have right now is to take a pasting from, from a peasant with a stick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, it was. And it was, it was happening, I'm thinking... Well, would I fight dirty? But then you, you, but then the game's like almost like it's a bit finger waggy. It's if you can, you, the game's wagging its finger. You go, oh, don't do that, don't do that. I mean, actually, again, that's that's part of it. That is part of it, isn't it? It, it? it does have that quality to it where you would feel if you did something unknightly, you were being uh, an unruly player, or you weren't playing it properly. In, in a strange way, of all the games I've ever played, it's the, the one game where I've really felt there's a way of playing it properly. Yes. And if I don't play it properly, I'll be in trouble somewhere. I don't know. Someone for KC must send me a letter. It comes to attention. You have not been playing Pendragon in a knightly and chivalrous fashion. Please, please either stop playing it or change your ways, Judge Blythe. That's how it, fe- that's how it feels. It does feel. It's a finger-waggy game. Paladins, isn't it? Bloody paladins wagging them fingers. Clerics and paladins. <laughs> Do it like this. Don't use a crossbow. It's not fair. Oh, gonna not poison them. No. It's <laughs> not being unknightly. I don't want to be a knight. I want it to be a wizard. So, in, in I, want I... Be Mer- I want it to be Merlin. Can I be Merlin? No, you can't. Put this suit of armor on. In the ultimate <laughs> irony, Judge Blythe, the rules lawyer, is resenting having fingers wagged at him. So yeah. it's, it's only the judge who's allowed to wag their finger. Well, do you know what? The 
go and do some fingering with your finger. Stop wagging your finger. That's <laughs> what I say. Finger your gavel. Don't wag the finger. In fact, I might change it. It's not a case of stop saying finger. It's a case of stop saying wagging your finger. Stop wagging your finger, Pendragon. King Arthur, your round table. I was like Mordred. Cheers, <laughs> cheers, Blimey. <laughs> right. Bye. Hello, this is Gaz. And this is Baz. We're your genial, some might even say avuncular hosts of What Would The Smart Party Do podcast. Where you'll find a special blend of gaming chat, quality interviews, deep dive reviews, advice, war stories and the occasional splash of actual play. So, draw up a comfy chair, get a brew going and join the Smart Party. Level up your gaming mojo at whatwouldthesmartpartydo.com or find us on iTunes, Spotify and all other reputable purveyors of podcasts. I'll get me caught! Well, it's that point of the podcast where we're drifting towards the door and uh, we're still uh, talking to each other. Um, It's Saturday afternoon when we're recording this in our own homes. Oh, Bladdy, yeah. you got a drink there. It's not, uh, in someone it's not in someone else's. No. We're in our own home. Well, we're recording this at home, and there's a reason for that. I mean, some people like the fact that we're recording this at home, but we went to Lassa Gallery a couple of weeks ago, and it was short. They weren't let us in. What's happened? Well, I know what's happened. COVID. I know, I know what's happened. Open the pubs again. <laughs> Turn the jukebox up. Turn it down when we're recording. People don't like that. Some people like it, some people don't. Yeah. It's a marmite thing. Care. It's a marmite thing. But we don't care. No. Because <laughs> we're, we're on about three pints. We're on about three pints. We're in the pub. We don't care. I'm going to call it it's the bit where we just uh, talk about things that are currently occupying our gaming thoughts. So, um, Blythe, what have you got uh, on the go at the moment? What's your uh, latest thing well, that's occupying I've your thoughts? Done, I've, I've taken the plunge. Oh. I'm taking the plunge. You start to whisper. Bought, you start to whisper. I, 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 the reason I'm whispering because my wife doesn't know that yeah. I bet ninety quid on the Pirates of Drinax. <laughs> what? I bought the Pirates of Drinax because we're going to be running it, aren't I? I'm going to be running it in September. Yeah. We have our Saturday morning group that we run over the over the winter season. Yes, it runs over the winter season, doesn't it? It does. Um, you know. No horses die, though, you know. <laughs> but we run it over the winter season, and we finished Mutant Year Zero, haven't we? And I said um, I would run Pirates of Drinax. And I've had uh, I've had sight of a PDF, but I needed <laughs> I needed to buy the actual physical thing. Because it's of course so you did. big. Well, of course you know what? I, I did. It's so big. I can't, I can't digest it all in PDF format. I can't. So I've, I've bought a physical copy. It arrived this morning, right? My wife is working today. And it arrived this morning. The box is in the bin. It's in the back room. She'll never know. There'll be no questions asked. No questions asked. No interest in all my role-playing paraphernalia. She doesn't know a, a Pirates of Drinax from a AD&D player's handbook that I've had since the 80s. She's no idea. So that's okay. So it's an invisible purchase, isn't it? There's no consequence whatsoever. Um, but I bought it and I've, I've been reading it. it. It is. I don't like saying this because it's tempting fate, isn't it? But it is. It is really, really good. 
I mean, how... I think our Saturday morning group basically got to sign your lives away for five years to get through it because it's absolutely... I mean, it's it's kind of 10 interlinked scenarios, but as well as that, all the background you get and all the side quests and all the potential for other adventures is just it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It is really, really good campaign. It just brings Traveller alive. It is one of the best RPG campaign stroke supplements because it's kind of both because you get the Trojan Reach sector and you get the adventures. It's one of the best things I've ever read. You know, it really is good. That is tempting fate because... Yeah, well, when that's it, it, isn't it? it that's the thing, is it? Reading something is the, is the challenge, isn't it? And you put so much investment in it. Are you setting yourself up for a fall? Are you gonna, you, that, that's that's going to be the thing with it, isn't it? it? It feels like that, and it is, it is one thing to read it. It's one thing to read it, and in your head go, this is brilliant. But I must admit, it is quite a daunting prospect running it. It is quite daunting because it is so big. And navigating your way through it, that kind of thing. I think this summer I'm going to have to sit there and read the whole thing probably twice just to get my head around, you know, get the, the head around what's going on and how it works and how it's going to play out. So are you, you going know? to manage it? Because, you know, we always say to get through these big campaigns, you have to have an end in sight, make sure yeah. it's scheduled, have an idea of what you're aiming for and um, be uh, ruthless in your following the line of the the campaign is that going to be possible with this i think i think so yeah i think you can run it in two ways you you can do it so that it's predominantly the adventures and the adventures you know can be run in any order apart from i think the first and last one obviously can't but particularly the last one but i think the adventures can be running any, any order you like um but then, of course, in between times, as as pirates for King Orleb, you you can have lots and lots of other adventures, raiding ships and that kind of thing. Whether we do that or not, I don't know, because that really would be the rest of your life playing it. So <laughs> I might just stick to the adventures. Maybe I'll do some tables for pirate raids in between, but like a winter cycle, a bit like a, that a kind of thing. Yeah, Pandragon-esque piracy, piracy cycle, you know, that kind of thing. So I admire your efforts in trying to conceal it. Yeah, it's just in a corner now. And it innocuously sat in a corner, so it's been there for years. Next uh, next weekend is virtual grog meet. And yeah. I'm I have to uh, say as well, can I, can I say as well? I, I I'm fifty-three. Why do I feel I can buy what I want, can't I? Why am I being like yeah, this? Of course you can. Fifty three. What's going on? Anyway, go on. Yeah. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> I'm just sort of telling myself off there a bit. Idiots. Do yes. what you like. Anyway, go on. Are you going to play it? So it I'm, going to play, I'm going to play it. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to play it. And yeah, it, it, that, that's right. It's not just a casual, uh, it's not just a, yeah, a frivolous purchase. It is, it is factored in for September to start doing it. So yeah. It's going yeah. to bring pleasure and enjoyment to more than you. You know, you that's that that's course, the way yeah. to see this. Yeah, of course. Know. That's the way to see it. It's an act of charity, really, isn't it? It is. It is. It's it an act of charity, really. It's like it's like a donated ninety pounds to charity, really. That's and and who could object to that? Exactly. What kind of horrible person would object to that? Yeah. If you need a testimony, if, if you need a testimonial from me, then I'm yeah. willing to give it. Thank you. <laughs> 
carry on. <laughs> so uh, next uh, weekend is uh, virtual grog meet, and as per usual, I'm up to my eyes with uh, prep this week. And I wanted to just mention that I've been doing the Persephone extraction, which is a Knights Black Agent campaign that last year we did three sessions of and at the start of the first session i said listen we can do either we we can do this in in two ways we can either rush through this and i take you through the opening session and the end session so like let's say about pirates of drones you know that's all you really need isn't it do the opening of the campaign end campaign we can squeeze it in into three sessions or um, I give you this offer that we take a bit more time over it over these three sessions and come back a year later at Virtual Grunt mm. Meet 2022 and we complete it. And it's not the entire thing. I've just um, I've just picked out some of the choice highlights, but it is a challenge, isn't it, to uh, start a campaign that has a 12 month gap in between? Yeah. Yeah, like starting a cold engine, isn't it, or something it like is. that, isn't it? Like like a car that's not been, uh, you know, the battery's gone flat because it's been left on the drive for, for six months. <laughs> and particularly a game where it's a gumshoe, it's like the, as we've explained it before, it's those like continuity of clues, one links to the next, to the next, to the yeah. next, and you get this critical mass of um, idea of what's going on. And then just to pick that up again, 12 months later with the same characters, mm. the same players with all everything that's happened. I'm just hoping that when we're there on uh, next Friday and I introduce it and do a bit of scene setting that everything clicks because it often does, doesn't it? When players get together, yeah. it's almost like that year feels like a week. I'm just hoping we I get think that. It, I, th- I think it will click into place. I think it almost always does. And it's always surprising that it does, but um, I think it's it's a games master's problem, isn't it? It's a games master in perspective where, as a games master, you've got the players have to turn up and enjoy. It. I think you, you said this about Children of Fear, which we've been doing once a month, and you've said sometimes that that once a month is a bit just a bit too long, and it struggles to get you struggle as a games master to get restarted and get your head back into it but as a player you say I don't find that I just think oh great it's children of fear yeah Ooh, I'll turn up and play it I think yeah. that and when we do play it it does it does click into place and it does work I think as a games master it's just getting yourself restarted and getting your head into that space isn't it after so long that's that's the thing it's not when you start playing it it's alright it's just yeah. before that that it feels odd and yeah. difficult, I think, sometimes. Okay. Particularly something like a, a thriller emulation with uh, Nice Black mm-hmm. Agent. It's getting that uh, momentum going. But I suppose that's yeah. the same in the genre of film that it's trying to emulate, like the Bourne identity and yeah. those Bourne films. There's always that initial unsteady bit, isn't it? acclimatising yourself what, what what's Bourne's situation at this particular time and then quite quickly the action starts and you get drawn into whatever what's happening in this episode or what have you so that's what I'm hoping to uh, do but yeah I'm looking forward to that 
I, I, once again, I've overcommitted. I've got too many sessions to uh, prepare for and to put a <laughs> podcast out. So I, I will bend and fold time uh, to, to, to do it. Well, you know what I always say to you? The thing is with these things, you do have to do them. Yeah, you do have to do them. Yeah. You do have to do them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What what have you got on? What have you got on the uh, for uh, um, virtual club I'm, meet? Well, I'm running. I'm running some traveller on Saturday morning, and I'm playing Tales from the Loop on Saturday afternoon, which I'm really looking forward to because I've run Tales from the Loop, run quite a bit of Tales from the Loop, but I've never played it, so I'm looking forward to doing that. I'm yeah. playing the weirdo. I picked the weirdo. Of course you have. Of course you have. <laughs> of course, yeah, the weirdo. Yeah. Yeah, nothing very yeah, night- forward to that. Nothing very nightly about that. Nothing, no, not that. That you see, that's the thing, isn't it? There you go. I could have played the jock, who's a bit probably a bit more nightly, but I didn't. I've gone for the weirdo. <laughs> there you go. And on that, I think we should say goodbye. All right, see you goodbye. later. See ya. There isn't another bit. I'm just going to make a note of that. Pirates of Drenax, quarter one purchase, Blythe. I'm pretty sure he's bought other things along the way, but my new game purchase was Wise Guys, a Savage Worlds-driven gangster setting using the backdrop of 1990s Las Vegas. And I know I promised a bit more on gangsters and some gangbusters actual play recording. It's still on its way, but I had a bit of an editing mishap. I forced quit and didn't save the editing. So it erased four hours worth of work and I've been blowing into a brown paper bag ever since. But I intend to return to it at some point in the next few days. I will keep this short this time. I just want to say thank you to all the virtual Grogmeet GMs and players for making it another great event. There were some fantastic games available with a diverse set of rules and scenarios. Everyone sounds like they had a great time, so thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you support us via Patreon, thank you very much for sticking with us in the past, present and the future. As I know, things are getting tight. Through the Rocky Road, we'll be there to entertain you. We've got some extra content in the bag from Virtual Grugmeat to keep me going it'll be released shortly and there's some more Pendragon in part 2 until then adios amigos